0: Hey, Stephanie, what's the giveaway this week?
1: So this week, we are partnering with Beta to give away the Dolby Dimension headphones. What are they? Did you try them on? How epic are they?
0: Yeah, I already used them. They're, <laughs> they're incredible. <laughs>
1: Don't try and steal them from me. They're mine now. I was just
0: trying to set you up, but they're awesome. They're yeah, synced with my
1: of, phone, so... We have a
0: couple of <clears throat> pairs that we're testing, and they're uh, the best headphones I've ever used. And I've had uh, you know noise-canceling headphones yep. in the past and a whole collection of different things, AirPods. And uh, these headphones are the best. Yeah, they're, awesome.
1: they're super comfy. And I really love the life mix feature where you can toggle on and off the sound environment. So you can be listening to your music at full blast, full noise cancellation, you're just in your own environment. And then you can actually turn down your music and start absorbing the outside environment sound as well. So yeah. if Grayson's crying, if Chad's trying to get a hold of me, if I need to hear something, doorbell ring, you can turn it down slightly so you can hear both, but it sounds great and, and super fun. all you have
0: to do to enable that is just tap twice on the headphones and instantly you can hear everything that's going on around you. So yep. that's one of many awesome features. There's probably got 12 other features or something like that. And we are giving away a brand new set of these headphones.
1: Two. We are giving away two, two? sets of these. I can't headphones. believe it. Not one, but two. So go to our giveaway. The link is in the show notes. And Try to win them.
0: Yeah, thanks to Beta and thanks to Dolby for helping support Mission Daily and providing our listeners with awesome contests and giveaways so we can give back to you. So if you want to enter for a chance to win, go to the link in the show notes and you can also get more entries for referring guests and friends and family. So check that out and enter to win now. I'm Alec Baldwin,
2: and you are listening to Mission Daily, selected as Best of 2018 by Apple. Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning.
1: Hey, everyone. On today's episode, we have Nadia Masri,
2: founder and CEO of Perksy, a mobile customer insight platform that helps businesses understand their target demographics, specifically millennial and Gen Z audiences. Nadia's work with Perksy and her natural inclination towards entrepreneurism has earned her a lot of attention. Recently, she was named one of Forbes' 30 Under 30 for marketing and advertising in 2019. In this episode, Chad and Nadia discuss what she's learned from her prior business ventures, how she's relied on those around her to support her, and why she finds empowerment in not knowing the answers to everything. Stay tuned for more from Nadia Masri of Perksy.
0: Nadia, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Same. So we were talking a little bit before we hit record and you like real talk. Why?
2: Yes. Um, I think real talk is so important. I think um, it's a way for people to be able to express what they're actually feeling. And when people can do that and others can relate to them, I think it's really validating. I know that when I have a feeling and I share it, And other people are like, you know what? Same, me too. I feel the exact same way. It makes you feel a lot better, especially if it's something that's tough to deal with. It makes dealing with it a lot easier. You just don't feel so alone. I think real talk is inclusive.
0: I completely agree because often when we're building a business or doing something that's getting a lot of press, a lot of mentions, there can be this appearance of success, but the work and what's going on in the trenches is quite painful. It's not always, doesn't match up to a lot of the press. So I would love to take a step back from your story to go to the origins let's start like where you grew up
2: yeah absolutely so i was born and raised in toronto canada which was a great place to grow up i always love sharing with people things that when i was young i i didn't really realize were contributing to to who i i was my parents didn't let us watch tv or movies or play video games or anything like that. So I just grew up playing outside uh, yeah. and reading a lot of books. And it's interesting because you know, as I think of it, it's, it's so funny, when you get older, you start to really reflect on everything you did when you were younger for some strange reason and you know, try to make sense of it and help figure out how it informed the person you have become or the journey you're on. And I feel like in all the books that I read, I really liked fantasy and I loved these, these stories and slipping into different worlds. And I did the same thing in play. I used to play a lot. And I think it made me a lot more creative. And I realized later in life that I just like creating worlds. And in a strange and interesting way, building your own company is like creating your own little world. Then, well, I guess elementary school, high school, everything was in Toronto. Um, I then went to college in Canada. So I started school when I was 17, I was in my first year of college. And I went to a school called Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo. And while I was there, I was, you know, I felt like I'd gone to school too early. I don't think enough people talk about that, but you know, I was just, I was actually just giving a talk at a high school this weekend. And, you know, I was talking to a few girls who were saying, I really want to take a gap year. Like I'm, I feel like I haven't seen the world and I'm supposed to make a decision about what I want to do for the rest of my life. And, that's exactly how I felt when I was 17. I had this mm-hmm. feeling like I was supposed to be making a decision that was going to be for the rest of my life. For some reason, it felt so finite. I think- Same here.
0: I was terrified by it. Yeah. All throughout high school.
2: Yeah. And you look back on it. I didn't, funny enough, I didn't even think about it in high school until like it was, it was time to apply to university. And in Canada, we don't get started in grade 11. I know that that's the way it is in the States, but- in Canada, we apply in um, our first semester of grade 12, so our, our senior year. And I guess that's when I started thinking about it. And it just gave me this anxiety. I was like, I don't. how am I supposed to know what I want to do for the rest of my life? I don't even know what jobs are out there other than, you know, the basic ones that I'd been told, like the, the more, I guess, quote unquote, traditional ones, like being a doctor, right. an accountant, a lawyer. I didn't even know that it was possible to work in, to, to build a startup. So yeah, I, I mean, I wish I knew. Uh, I wish I knew back then that there were so many more opportunities and so many worlds within worlds. Even within the startup world, you can be a startup lawyer. You can do startup sure. communications and startup PR. I I didn't even know those things. I didn't know that you could. I thought it was you choose a job and then and then you kind of find an interest area. Um, I didn't realize that you can find an interest area and then pick a job within it. Um, wish any of that. But you know, in my first year, I was. I took philosophy, psychology, and communications with a minor in business. I basically thought to myself, if I do everything, maybe I'll figure this out a lot more quickly. And you know, at, the, at this job fair in my, my first semester um, of my first year of college, there was this opportunity to work with this company called College Pro Painters. So I begged my dad to be the guarantor on a on a loan because um, obviously being 17 at the time, I just couldn't take out a loan from the bank myself. My mom was like, don't do it. And my dad's like, mm, I'm, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so he did it anyway. So, you know,
0: and a loan is is basically a formalized commitment. It's a big girl and big boy form of like, that's how things get done. You make a commitment and you, you know, ensure that with a personal guarantee or collateralized assets and yeah, I just pe- people get way too scared about that and credit card debt and things like that. And they're you want to be careful, but at the same time, like you want to put structures and incentives around around things, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I also don't feel like I really knew what that like. I didn't know about interest and all that then. I, I don't know why. I just no one had taught me, or maybe I wasn't paying attention to school. I don't know. But I would say that it all worked out for the better. So took up a loan. It was like a 20K loan, used that to buy the franchise and sort of get started. And it was great because they would have these sessions for us on weekends and during time off where we could learn how to build a business. So we learned about things like payroll and HR. And I would say that was so incredibly valuable. I don't think that there were as many books on entrepreneurship um, then. I mean, this was what, 2008 going into 2009. So there weren't as many books. And uh, definitely not as many resources, or at least I didn't have access to them, they weren't as easily accessible, I didn't have podcasts to listen to and hear people's stories. So I was just trying to figure out how to how to do it, but you know, that summer I did pretty well. Hired um, some of my friends and some other folks who were students at other schools, and we produced quite a bit of work. So we produced about 70k worth of work, did all of the painting that summer for four months, And I think that's when I was really bit by the entrepreneurial bug. I was like, wow, I took one amount of money and was able to make a larger amount of money. And I was able to do something really cool. And I did it on my own. And that was really, really satisfying. And so I went back to school in my second year. And I was like, man, you know, in contrast, I I don't know if I can pay attention. Like this this isn't as thrilling to me. Um, sure. And I had a a fashion blog at the time and um, was going to New York Fashion Week and Toronto Fashion Week. And what we focused on um, in the blog was really telling people's stories. And so someone suggested I turn it into a magazine. So then I was like, you know what? Business number two. I'm going to take a stab at this. And it, we called it Birdcage Magazine. And what we were really focused on is... You know, you have all these trends in the industry, and I think this is the same, not just for the fashion industry, but for every industry. And people really focus on the work product, so what's produced. Um, So the music itself, or, you know, the clothes that are on the runways, or the trends. And for us, we cared a lot more about the people behind the process. So we would interview those who were, you know, makeup artists, the hairstylists, um, the ones who were actually building the set designing the hats for couture runways and i thought that was a lot more fascinating and we were really focused on why these people did the things that they did and it wasn't then that i i kind of clued into it but i think i learned that that i've always had a common thread of being interested in why people do the things they do and what drives their behavior that's always really fascinated me so what attracts people to certain things what keeps them going you know why do they love doing what they're doing what brings them passion and what brings them joy And does that result in creating extraordinary work? And so, you know, after a year and a half of running that business, that one was actually, that one was a tough one for me because I was 19 trying to launch a magazine in New York. And that was the first quote unquote failure that I experienced. And I would say today, I don't really look at it as a failure, but at the time I definitely did because the iPad came out, advertisers no longer wanted to, you know, move experimental budgets onto these niche magazines. they were more focused on testing out this new, exciting iPad advertising concept. And I remember thinking to myself, like what I did didn't work. And it was so hard to stomach because I put so much of my life and just everything I had, my energy, all my attention and focus and like like love and enthusiasm into this one thing, you know. We had over fifty contributors. Um, we had six of us just building the core magazine, and it didn't work. And it was so heartbreaking to me. And at the time, though, I realized I was a very different type of entrepreneur. When I started that business, I was so focused. By the way, I realized that I'm like now going beyond your question and just kind of telling the story. But
0: no, no, no that's that's fine. That's yeah, fine.
2: awesome. I think that. At the time, I was a very different type of entrepreneur. You know, I was a baby entrepreneur. I was just getting started. And one of the biggest mistakes that I think I made, or or one of the things that I think I would do differently today is I didn't ask for help. I think it was because, I don't know, I was was afraid that because I was a young entrepreneur, everyone would automatically assume I didn't know what I was doing. And to be honest, I mean, in contrast to what I know today, if I have to compare, (laughs) I definitely did not Right. But I was terrified that everyone would realize this and for whatever reason wouldn't want to work with me and that in some way, shape or form, this would hinder my progress or make me unable to achieve my goals. And I was afraid to say, I don't know. And what I've learned is the power of I don't know is extraordinary. I use it all the time today. So, you know, now I, I sit in a room and if someone says something, I'm like, you know, I don't know what that is. I don't nod my head and pretend to. I just say, I don't know. Because if you don't know and you say that you do, people aren't happy when the results aren't what they expect. But if you say, I don't know, people can't fault you for what you don't know. And the beauty of that is if they take the time to explain it to you, which often they do, Mm -hmm. you then know. Mm -hmm. So it's really simple. I think what's made me, the reason why I know all the things I know today is because I took the time to just say, hey, I don't know, could you explain it to me? And then they do move forward knowing it for the next time
0: right so okay that prompted another great question let's go so i have three questions that have to be answered because they definitely fit with the real talk theme so let's go back to your first franchise business where you had a great great track record of capital allocation there took the 20k loan turned it into 70k over a summer that's super exciting what i'm curious about is when most entrepreneurs get started in business they very very quickly find out Who is a friend or family member that's supporting them? And who is a friend or family member that kind of casts doubt? Maybe it's a peer, maybe it's an acquaintance, um, but you very quickly find out who wants to help, who wants to support you and who does that in the real world. So what was your experience like there? Did you find out, I know it's cliche, but did you find out who your real friends or real family were in that scenario?
2: Yeah, I would say that I noticed that more heavily Towards my later businesses, sure. Um, But maybe it's because of the contrast. So I've learned it in different ways. I think that you know I've had supporters and and naysayers in each. You know, to be fair, I was I was seventeen when I started my first business. And when it comes to, I know you said friend or family. When it comes to family, family can also be very protective of you. So you know, um, I come which which can
0: come across as a hindrance, but it's, I mean, they're doing it out of love and it's, they're trying to care for you. Yeah.
2: I mean, I have an older brother and older brothers Ah, are a certain type of way. (laughs) And, you know, my older brother's definitely really protective. He's so supportive of me, but I think, you know, in the beginning he was like, why don't you just get a real job? And he would ask me all the time, when are you going to get a real job? And now today he's one of my biggest fans. So, you know, and he's never changed in, in attitude, but I think that's just, you know, his way of trying to protect me and make sure that making sure that I was making the right decisions for myself um, and just have faith and, and just fearless dedication and devotion to the thing that you want to accomplish and right. remember that the the opinions of others are are important but only to a certain extent I mean it depends it depends who you ask I mean I care deeply about the opinions of my parents you know I I care very much about making them proud but if, you know, at the end of the day, I, I realize that if you're happy, like really happy and doing work that you love and you're supporting yourself, your parents are, are going to be happy, at least mine were. Yeah. And I found yeah. that to be, you know, a common thread across, you know, a, a bunch of my friends and other entrepreneurs that I speak with. But I think I did learn who my true friends were in my second business. And I think that comes more when you ask for help. So the, yeah. the friends that you have, that you know have the ability to help you when you ask for help and you genuinely need it, if they do or do not help, I think that's a great way to, to see who's supporting you and not supporting you. And, you know, you also see it later when you start to achieve a little more success, who comes back around who didn't have an interest in sort of being present in the early days. So I think, I think my, as I get busier and busier, I'll say my, group of friends become smaller and smaller just based on, you know, who I want to build the most meaningful relationships with. But sometimes I don't know, because is that really entrepreneurship or like, is, is that a side effect of entrepreneurship or is it just a side effect of, of getting older? I mean, yeah. you know, being 19 versus being 28 going on 29 this year. I mean, it's a lot happens in your twenties. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And it can if you're proactive. I, I think a lot of people are just view the first decade of their career as like, oh, I'll experiment. I'll find out some things. But it seems like you've really seized, you know, your, your 20s, basically. You've done a whole bunch of different things. I'm curious to take it back to the magazine and the uh, uh, learning experience you went through. What was the moment where you bounced back and said, screw this, like, it doesn't matter what just happened. I'm going to do something different in the future. What, what was was there a paradigm shift? Was there Uh, a new way of viewing that story that you, you did, what, what turned it around?
2: So I wouldn't say that there was this, like this moment of revelation. I wouldn't say that it was as neat and tidy. I'm a person who, you know, I I hold myself to a really high standard and I think while that's great, sometimes it can be tough because I'm definitely very tough on myself. You know, I, I think I wanted to see. I always want to see myself doing great things by my own standards and my own definition. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's even worse when it's not by anyone else's. When it's by your yeah. own. So I think the reason why it hit me so hard is because it's something that I so deeply cared about and wanted to bring to life, and I was so passionate about it. And I was terrified that I had lost time. And for whatever reason, I think maybe let's attribute it to youth. Um, I I kind of felt like you know it was just. Earth shattering. I'm like, you know, every, like this is over, everything is over. This is all I can only live in this moment. I didn't know how to go beyond it. I took some time, like a few months, to just take a step back and think. That's that's literally all I did. I just took a lot of quiet time. I just thought and I put myself into something more creative and allowed myself to reflect on that process. I then took a, I did a coaching certification and I did it so that I could learn how to better manage. Not only others, but myself. I wanted to learn what kind of managerial skills I would need moving forward. I was like, what can I do differently? So I think about how I build my next business differently. Because I think ultimately I knew, I couldn't put my finger on it, but a part of me knew that there would be something next. So Mm -hmm. it kind of happened over time. So while it was sudden, it was also kind of gradual. And it was mostly just learning how to forgive myself, which I now know how to do. So the hardest part of that entire process was learning how to be like, you know what, Nadia, it's okay that that thing didn't work. Like it did by other people's definitions. They're like, hey, you built a lot of hype. You got to do something really cool. You learned how to build a business and execute a really cool project. You learned how to hire and manage people. You brought together really creative individuals. So I think now that I look at it, I see it as a learning experience, and I don't look at it as a failure anymore. But I think the bravest thing and Well, I think, yeah, I think the bravest thing I learned how to do was bounce back and Mm -hmm. get back up. So what Birdcage taught me more than anything else was how to fail
0: forward. Sure. And you talked about, you know, battling that ever present perfectionism uh, type mindset and kind of going between that and oscillating basically between that and periods of self-love and forgiveness. And uh, so personally, I haven't met any, successful founders or CEOs that I want to emulate who are really easy on themselves. Um, I think this is something that gets left out of the popular discussion about business. Typically, everyone I meet is a perfectionist or they are their own biggest critic, but they also love themselves and, and not all the time and not in a, a way that's narcissistic, but in a way that's nurturing, that's really healthy. So how are you thinking about that? And how do you balance the perfectionist type personality and you know self-love?
2: You know... I wouldn't say that I, I wouldn't say that I look at them in the same way. So I think my perfectionist personality shows up in work product. So I wouldn't really, I don't really think it affects my, my perception of self. I think that, you know, I'm very, I I am very proud of the things that I've accomplished. And there's always a voice in my head that says, well, you can be doing more, you can work harder, you can you know, work smarter, you can create more time in your calendar, you can do X, Y, and Z. But it all has to do with the work product itself. It rarely interferes with my perception of self. I don't know why that is. I think, I think the separation just happened throughout my, my journey. But I can't really put, a, put my finger on when it was because I, I would say that in my second, like with Birdcage, my second business, I couldn't separate the two. I assumed hmm. that any, and it might have to do with like, you know, I was afraid to ask for help and afraid to ask for any kind of direction and now it's the opposite. So maybe now I separate me as an individual and Nadia as, as a person from Nadia's work product and what has sure. been produced. I would also say that this company is, you know, it's, it's the largest that I've built. So I think it's easier to look at it that way when there are a lot more individuals because it's a team effort. So we create something together. Like I don't take responsibility for everything that we've created because I did not create it alone. We have engineers, we have designers, creative directors, marketers, you know, business developers. So to me, I think that's why it's easier to separate as well. Um, I can see how it's harder in the beginning though, when it's just an idea and just a seedling.
0: So as you got started with Perksy, what was the, what's the origin story? And I, I think the company started back in 2015. So what was the, uh, the lead up? Because there's always a uh, you know, a gestation period where the idea takes shape and you start to test it and to validate it. What was that process like?
2: Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead up to a bit. So um, yes. after so- I had exited my third company, I decided to move back to uh, New York. So I was in Toronto at the time. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I'd been taking some classes at the Harvard Extension School. And one of their academic advisors reached out to me and told me that there was this program where you could enter into a full-time degree program. So that was awesome because it was going back to school at a time where I felt like I was really hungry for knowledge and hungry to learn and figure out what was next. And I wasn't really scared of what was next anymore. Um, I did want to explore and I was absolutely ready for it. Maybe everyone should go to school when they're 23. Who knows? <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> so fun side note, I dropped out of college midway uh, and did a gap year in Iraq, actually. Um, I chose it consciously, wanted to go there, but it was the best experience. Everyone around me thought it was a dumb idea to take a break from college, like already had a, a great trajectory, uh, but it was the best thing I ever did. So back to your story now with uh, some more cooperation that it's a great idea to take a break, come back later. So
2: yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, at that time, I really wanted to. I'd always enjoyed psychology and I'd always Mm -hmm. enjoyed, you know, all of the social sciences. And my dad's a psychiatrist. My mom was a teacher who um, retired early, spends a lot of time researching, and works a lot with ADD and ADHD students. And, you know, growing up, I had ADHD. And so I really wanted to understand myself as well. And so the courses um, I decided to take were mostly around. Psychology, neuroscience, science of emotions, epigenetics. And while I was in my first semester of 2015, I actually got meningitis. And it was one of the worst things uh, that has happened to me. It was absolutely terrifying. So I had viral and not bacterial, meaning that I couldn't just, it, it, there wasn't an easy treatment. So I'd gone to the hospital and they were like, well, it's definitely meningitis. And After spending some time in the hospital, I was then sent home to recover, and I was basically just out of commission for like two to three months. I remember that, it's funny, I was about to say, I I remember not remembering, but I could barely remember anything. I was awake for probably two hours of every day for the first month, then it was four hours for the second month, so I missed quite a bit of school. But losing my memory was absolutely terrifying because I felt like I was losing everything that made me You know, who who I was. I feel like we are a collection of everything that we can store in our brains and all of our memories. And so I just felt complete emptiness. Like I I couldn't think of things. I was just lying there with total emptiness. And that was pretty terrifying. And the reason I tell that story is because um, when I went back to school in the summer, I had to make up, you know, some of my credits. I was taking a marketing management class at HBS for undergraduate credit. And I was approaching life with a very different mentality. It was like literal yellow. I was like, "You only live once like like I had completely had a completely different view on life, and it was there that I really learned about market research and I remember being given these Nielsen tools and thinking to myself. This is really outdated. Like, I can't believe there's no better solution for brands. And I'd called up a lot of my old uh, customers. And I'm like, listen, are you guys struggling to reach younger audiences with market research? And they're like, yes, absolutely. Like, we need a solution for that. And so for summative project, I prototyped this um, app called ULab with a group. And what it did was consolidated all the school's Uh, Research studies and clinical trials from the three participating hospitals into one app, into a feed, where students were pre-screened. They could register for studies, go to them, and then get paid out through the app. And you know, after talking to my prof, after we presented it, uh, he was like, "You know, you should really consider taking this to market." And you know, I I always wonder if I would have, or if I would not have, if the meningitis experience didn't happen that year. And I think it was just like. I was like, you can honestly die at any time. And I know that sounds super cliche, but when you actually experience it, it's terrifying. Like you you just realize you have to seize every single opportunity. I'm like, why would I not be doing exactly what I want to be doing right now? Why can't I just explore? So then I did leave school for the second time. I just packed my bags and moved to San Francisco and was like, I don't know anybody here, but I'm going to take some time to figure it out. So what I did differently was instead of starting to build the product right away when i first got to san francisco in september of 2015 or i guess it was august towards the end of august i spent about four months actually doing research and just getting to know the industry so my belief is that if you want to learn how to do something and do it really well you need total immersion you just need to Mm -hmm. immerse yourself in the environment learn absolutely everything that you can about it and just like become one with it just so that you know you can achieve what you want to achieve so I spent a lot of time networking, making new friends, um, building relationships, like real relationships, and finding people who could help me. And I had called up you know, CEOs of, of old companies that had built something similar, asked them why it didn't work. Um, I tried to really understand the customer pain point. And I think that made it a lot easier for me to build the product and be a little more in tune with what the customer actually needed. And then so in early 2016, I pulled together some, some people that I knew and was like, listen, I just need a prototype. We, I just need like a basic framework so that I can start pitching this to potential customers. So then started building that. We were getting really great feedback um, from potential buyers at the time. And man, back then it was super dinky. Like I, I still keep the screenshots of what it looked like then just to like frequently remind myself of how far we've actually come. I think that's also another way to you know, counteract the perfectionist personality, to remind yourself that you've actually come very, very far. I um, mean, it's right. very helpful. And yeah, and then, you know, spent the rest of 2016 building, moved back to New York in 2017, started building, you know, a bigger team, had raised an angel round at that time. And, you know, the product was ready to go to market towards the end of 2017. And then I was off to the races.
0: So when you were doing the customer development in San Francisco, you're talking to people, you're calling up old business contacts, you know, making new ones. Uh, Where did you learn that? Was it through business school? Was it just through being in the market and having a successful exit before? Was it a mentor? Where'd you pick that up from?
2: Well, to be fair, it was only one business school class. It was it was for undergraduate credit. Um so I sure. don't think I got the same business school experience as some people might. Um so, you know, that one class over the summer, I would say that I learned a lot there. But you know, I think a lot of it is just intuition. Like if you're trying to solve a problem, what is the approach that you would take to solve any problem? So one of, you know, my favorite quotes, um, the internet says that Einstein said this, so I hope that he did, but he said, if I had an hour to uh, save the world, I would spend 90% of my time uh, understanding the problem and only 10% finding the solution. So I kind of take that approach to everything. My belief is that, you know, you need to really understand where people are coming from and, and where sure. customers are coming from with the problem. And so because I was inherently curious about how people worked and how their brains worked, I think I was able to add my own sort of dimension to the product we were building, so it wasn't just about consumer research and market research, but also genuinely understanding people um, sure. like why they were doing the yeah. things they were doing and you know what's driving their behavior, and learning how to relate to them. Not just a behavioral level, but also on an emotional level, which I think is really important for brands. But I think that you know, just trying to follow your intuition and being like, hey, there's a problem in front of me. How do I solve this? I need to understand how to do it. I should talk to people. I think if you spend a lot of time doing the early research and having conversations with the folks that you, know, you eventually want to, to use your products, you can learn a lot about how to build the product from them, even from the standpoint of how to think about it. I think Mm -hmm. that's really important as well. It's getting in the right mindset.
0: Would you say that uh, the marketing industry or consumer brands and uh, maybe just like marketing as a whole is something that you're fascinated with, that you're obsessed with? How do you think about the industries that you're studying and serving? Are you obsessed with them? Do you dive deep into research? What do you do with them?
2: So I've, I spend a lot of time thinking about things. I know that, that sounds really vague, but I spend a lot of time thinking about why I'm doing the things I'm doing and what's Mm -hmm. driving my behavior, because that's like my one liner of why I like doing this from a product standpoint or from a company standpoint. And I I was thinking about this recently. And I realized that when it comes to this business, I just love solving problems. And I love the diversity of the problems that we get to address. So it's not just marketing. I mean, it's, we work with CPG companies, hospitality, retail, you know, it it could be an airline, it could be a technology company, it could be a a private equity firm. Like it really depends. And I'm just fascinated to see the way their worlds work and the problems Mm -hmm. they're thinking about. And I love it when a potential customer comes to me and they're like, listen, this is what we're trying to solve. And I'm like, wow, it's product packaging. That's so fascinating to know that even this subtle difference can make can make a huge difference when it comes to someone purchasing it. I just love looking at those things and being a part of that process and getting to the solution, I find to be very interesting and very satisfying. And I do think that passion is a currency when you are an entrepreneur and being able to apply it to the work that you're doing, it fuels quite a bit.
0: So I'm a big fan of uh, studying things, reading, uh, solving problems as well. And one of my favorite things, though, is to just make time to think and make time to take walks, have conversations with fascinating people that have unique or radical views on the world. And do you schedule time to think into your schedule now? Do you schedule days that are maybe not as packed so you can take a step back and work on the business instead of inside it? Or what's your thought process there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we've started doing or trying to do something called No Meeting Wednesday. It's recent. So I've been going through this like unique growth phase where there's a bit of a turning point and I have to kind of switch up my mentality before I used to try and take any meeting, any phone call, any meeting, any press interview, absolutely everything because we were in hustle mode. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, business started really taking off, you know, earlier this year. I mean, last year was huge ramp up time as well, but I found that I can no longer have the same approach with putting things onto my calendar. And this has been a recent transition for me. And it's really tough. Learning how to say no is super, super difficult because like the work that we have to do, sometimes there's really creative work and creativity on a deadline is hard. And you're right. You do need thinking time. You need to be able to sit down and think. And I've only just started leaving work earlier. I definitely didn't do that before, but now I take the time to just leave work and just sit. So even yesterday I did this. I just sat on my couch for like two hours. and did absolutely <laughs> nothing. And know it sounds really weird because I just, no, like, no, no, it just doesn't. in the darkness.
0: No, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound weird. I mean, uh, there are plenty of famous CEOs that they're famous for getting picked on or kind of like made fun of for having time to think, scheduling time to think. Like Bill Gates is the one that popularized his weeks off to think. He tells people they're for reading. But if you read some biographies and stuff, he was a huge fan of carving out time just to think so. Yeah, I'll defend you there. Not not weird at all. Super cool.
2: Yeah, I definitely think a lot about what it means to be a CEO. Um, And I'm constantly trying to hone my skills and understand how to be a better CEO. And I genuinely believe that one can't expect others to understand where they are coming from if they can't understand where they're coming from themselves know thyself has always been like the guiding principle in my life and so I've, I've recently picked up a book well actually one of my marketing managers got it for me um it's really awesome i highly recommend it it's called the high growth handbook by elad gill and one of the chapters is, it's awesome
0: it's we've, we've got on our bookshelf my co-founder and i are reading it at the same time right now so it's awesome
2: yeah and it's um the role of the ceo that i was really interested in And, you know, the craft of being a great CEO is something that I find fascinating. I like learning about them. I like learning how, you know, different CEOs have different approaches or they're celebrated for different reasons. Some because they're excellent at their own personal branding, where they have great press and PR strategies that they drive for their companies. Others because they're um, incredible product leaders. Some because they just know how to deal with the bottom line. And so I like kind of piecing these things together and trying them on for myself and trying to better understand where I can improve and how I can be the, the, the leader my team needs me to be. Because while I do think that it's being a great CEO has a lot to do with you know your own personal preferences, your own unique talents and skills and abilities, I think it also has to do with making decisions that resonate with the culture that you've created and the people who stand by you? So I frequently ask myself the question: What do I need to do to be a better leader for the people in this company? Who do they need me to be? And I don't. I know that sounds kind of strange, like asking yourself, you know, who someone else needs you to be. But I think that's an important question as a leader. Um, I'm not a parent yet, but sometimes I I feel like parents ask these questions as well. My best friend is is a mom, and she said she said that she thinks about this. She's like, you know, how can I? I'm always trying to think about. You know what kind of mom i need to be for for my daughter like how to raise my daughter and i kind of think of it in a similar capacity when it comes to sure. you know my people in my company
0: yeah and that's the starting point of empathy right it's uh that's how empathy doesn't happen like instantly you don't just instantly empathize with your coworkers or your teammates uh it takes a long time it takes yeah conscious thought and effort so when you're making that conscious thought and effort whether you're building culture recruiting people or working with your team members what are you doing to become a better leader? Is there anything you're working on right now that is a weakness that you're trying to shore up? Or maybe is there like something you're trying to stop doing uh, completely?
2: You know, I'm trying to, I, I mentioned this earlier, learning how to say no is actually something I, I really struggle with in terms of putting things on my calendar. Um, and in terms of new business, I think because we're getting so many inbound requests now, for the first time, I'm having to say no to projects. And that's very strange to me because I want to do a lot of things and I get excited by them. And, you know, my, my team likes to remind me, I, I'm very, very blessed to have an amazing team, like an incredible team of humans um, who are leaders in their own regard. And um, they like to remind me that like, you know, not you can't do it all, you can't do it all. And I'm like, there's always a part of me that's like, but can't I? <laughs> and, I'm, and, and I'm like trying to find a way to do it all. But, you know, learning how to say, how to say no is, is definitely tough, but I learn a lot from my team as well. And what we do in our company is we have this precedent of delivering constant feedback and and total honesty. And I think a lot of companies talk about transparency. I can't speak for other companies because, you know, I'm not in those other companies, so I don't know how they do it. But what that means to us is saying the hard truths and then also making sure that you're you're championing people for what they're doing. Um, so we talk about everything both right and wrong. So we address it as an, you know, we tell everyone you're here because we think that you're, you know, an extraordinary person, that you're talented, you're smart, you're capable. And we want to help grow, you know, fantastic leaders, whether like engineers, designers, um, salespeople, whatever the role is. And then I think it also makes it easier to deliver the feedback that's tough to deliver. But I've just learned that, being completely honest with your people is very, very refreshing. And there's a device out there um, that's very contrasting. There's some that says, you know, you know leaders have to, they, they can't share everything and they have to, you know, they can't be completely transparent with their people. I think you'd be surprised how your team actually has the ability to be who you need them to be just as much as you have the ability to be who they need you to be. You know, I have especially like my my founding team. They're amazing. We've been working together for a long time. They know me. I think they know my strengths and weaknesses, and I know theirs. And you know, leaning on each other, we're all, or a lot of us are, we're similar in age, and I think also in attitude. Sometimes, I think we can really help each other develop. And taking off the leadership hat sometimes, and remembering that you know we're all at the same level, and we're all trying to achieve the same goal makes it a lot easier to show up honestly and not have to try to pretend to be someone that you're not which is the most refreshing feeling in the world
0: yeah and i feel like honesty that's a foundation you can build almost anything on and honesty is something that if you start to really focus on it inside your culture over a while it becomes a superpower because people join from outside or other companies and they're like yeah i'm used to this or i'm used to my boss like doing these things and it's um over time, you forget that you're doing it, but it's definitely the core of any successful culture. So how else are you thinking about building culture for the long term? You've you, you know, you've alluded to it a lot, but it's uh, it's a long journey, right? It's, uh, it's not going to happen overnight. Are there any strategies you're thinking about or maybe some examples of practices you're engaging in to build culture?
2: You know, I think that for me, it's, when I think about culture, I just think about my own personal values. I think especially in the early days when you're growing a company, um, the company values are an extension of the founder's own personal values. Like for me, it's about truth seeking and honesty and transparency and design forward thinking, because that's what I care about. And I think I've applied that to the product. And that's why I've built this company, because it's what I enjoy doing and what I care about bringing to the world. And I definitely think that shows up in the culture. I think what we're trying to, to figure out is how can you continue to do the things that you want to do as you scale? Like in the early days, for example, it's a lot easier to have more, more frequent dialogue with your team about intentional learning. So how do you facilitate intentional learning? And once you start getting really busy, sometimes that becomes hard to maintain. I think what I'm trying to keep an eye on right now is making sure that we don't get too busy, that we forget to continue to embody these practices and you know, continue them throughout you know, our own culture journey, as I like to call it, and also ensuring that everyone's contributing to the culture. We're a team of 19, and, you know, to me, that's small enough that everyone can contribute to it. I like asking everyone um, in the team meetings, like, what do you guys think we're not doing? What would you like to be doing? Like, what do you feel will help facilitate your growth? I think that, especially, you know, at this stage of, of company, the people that come in tend to have very aligned attitudes and values, um, especially when it comes to the ways in which they want to work, the ways in which they want to show up, the kind of company they want to work for, because culture is, a, I think it can be, or at least it is in our case, abundantly clear in the early days. I actually think it becomes less clear when it's, it's papered, because culture is the living, breathing soul of a company, and right. it, it, it's palpable. So when you walk into our office, I think you know, the, the the way that we like to interact with one another. Um, we have a definitely a very friendly atmosphere. We care a lot about play. We like taking time off. We crack a lot of jokes. Um, um, whether you're the one cracking it or laughing at it, I, I just think it's just part of who we are. And I think it, it can definitely be felt. And I wonder what that's going to be like in, in two years when we're a lot bigger. Um, and I hope to maintain that. So I think more carefully about maintaining this more than I do about creating it because I think I think the process of creation is obviously something that happens over time.
0: For any founder that's creating culture or building a successful technology business like yourself, it's it's a real challenge, right? Like there are a lot of moments where you can bring in your team, you can share things with them, you can commiserate over things, but ultimately the problems, the challenges, you're going to have to solve them at the end of the day. Like maybe teammates can help, but there are a lot of problems that you're going to have to solve it gets really, really lonely. So how are you handling that? How are you confronting that? And how are you getting past it? Is it coaching? Is it friends, team members? What is it?
2: It's team members for sure.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: so I realized I realized this because whenever I feel lonely, I, I take a step back and try to figure out why I'm feeling lonely. And I think if you can get to the root of why you're feeling the way you're feeling, it makes it a lot easier to come to come to the conclusion of how you need to solve it. And for me, if it's that I'm feeling lonely in a decision I need to make, I loop other people into that decision. So I tell them yeah. how I'm feeling. So you know, I have a, my first hire, Andrew, really really close with him. And when I'm trying to solve a problem and I feel lonely in the decision that I have to make, um, I bounce ideas off of him. I think that I think what is loneliest in the in the founder journey is the feeling like you have to do everything alone and that it's all on you. And while that's kind of true in some ways, like at the end of the day, you're the one who has to make the decision and you're the one who has to, you know, enact it. I think the process doesn't have to be as lonely. I think you can loop other people in, even if they're just sitting there with you. I think that's a big thing.
0: So Nadia, did you raise an angel round for this company as a solo non-technical founder or what yeah, where were you at with that?
2: Yep. So um I'm I'm still a solo non-technical founder. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's incredible. I so I, I did too, just like full disclosure from uh Founders Fund, and then we took another small check from Sequoia Scouts. And it was an experience where I didn't know anything about the industry and I didn't know that much, but I uh found great partners, decided to partner with them, you know, said yes as a solo non-technical founder. And it wasn't until after that, that I found out that that's like supposedly hard or supposedly like, you know, nobody does that. But I would just love to hear a little bit more about your experiences in the early days after you got that angel investment. Like, what did that mean? How did you think about picking those partners? And yeah, because that's super rare for our industry and space, right?
2: Yeah. So I raised from people who really believed in me and what I was building for those first angel checks. It's one of those things that it's hard to put, it's kind of hard to describe the process because at the time I was just like hustling and just trying to get things done and bring my dream to life. I think I was just focused on finding people who could teach me as much as they could fund the business. And that's what I was looking for most, but that's, that's also because learning is such an important value of mine. Um, Like I said before, it's, it's something that, you know, exists in our company today, even as like a core pillar in the company. So I was trying to find people who could teach me, who had been there before, who could guide me. And I was really blessed to have amazing, amazing angels um, who could also facilitate introductions and point me in the right direction when I didn't have the answers. And, you know, once we got to a point, I I also really leaned on our our prospects, like our, our potential buyers, to try and learn what we needed to do next in order to get the product to market. So I would say that I leaned on... I I sought out angels who had expertise in things in areas where I wasn't really getting enough advice. And that was more on the, I guess, like on the financing side, or on the how do I go to market or on the business side, and then really kind of separating that from the product side. um, Because my belief was that, you know, the team inherently knows what they need to build. And we're working closely with customers on that end. And the combination of the two, I think, got us to a place where we could bring the product to market. Because, you know, by that point, I was like, all right, I have these angels who are making the right introductions, who are helping me think through HR and operations and how to go to market, and then working with customers to figure out how this product needs to come to market. And then when we launched, we were able to to be in a place where people already wanted to buy what we were selling. And then, I mean, I think when when raising angel money, I mean, before I did angel, I did friends and family. So I went out to a few of my closest friends and uh, family members, and they're the ones that put in the first checks. And it was really funny, actually, because um, my dad put in... bit of money. And I remember asking him, you know, dad, how come you didn't invest in my other businesses? And he's like, well, those ones weren't good ideas. (laughs) And I was like, all right, so that's how it is. Um, But you know, that was, it was just great to have that. You know, I I come from a a normal middle-class family. It meant a lot to me that my parents were investing in my business. And I also think it contributes to why i feel the need to work so hard and why I wanted to work so hard, not just to make them proud, but because, you know, them tossing any kind of money out the window, it's just not the kind of thing they can do. So uh, Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely plays a role there.
0: That's really cool. It takes a lot of confidence to take money from your parents when they don't have, you know, a huge amount. So yeah, I just want to applaud you for that because I feel like a lot of people think that that's, they believe in cliches like, oh, you know, you don't want to do business with friends and family and just silly things like that. That I feel like they're just not true. I mean, they're true only if you believe them. If you have a great family, if you have people you want to partner with, just partner with them. Ask them. So Nadia, final, Wait, I actually final just thought. want to
2: add something there.
0: Please, please. So,
2: so basically, um, I remember something that my dad had told me. He told me two really important things when my parents decided to invest in this business, and one of them was, I was like, Dad, why are you investing in this business? So this was after you know him joking around that you know this business is actually a good idea. And, you know, when I asked him, you know, dad, why are are you investing in this business? He said, Nadia, you have a unique ability to take nothing and turn it into something. And you have more grit and perseverance than, you know, anyone I've met. And that makes me very, very proud. And I kind of reflected on that and was like, you know, he's right. I just knew that this business was going to become something. And I was absolutely dedicated to it.
0: That feeling contagious, right? Because people who are thinking about writing a check, know <laughs> they, they have a very good sense. They do that professionally, or even in the case of angels, uh, they know how confident the founder is in the idea, in the business.
2: And I would say that I, I once read something that said, find what you love and be ruthlessly devoted to it. And I truly believe that's how I am. You know, you also have the the darker side of that with Charles Bukowski saying, find what you love and let it kill you. <laughs> but I mean, I get he, I get he was it. that. He was
0: that type of person though. Like, so, I mean, he was, he was pretty self-destructive.
2: <laughs> he was, but if you kind of like dial it back and just think about the fierce devotion he had to the work that he did, um,
0: yeah.
2: it's kind of the same. It's like the passion and the flame that's inside you. Yeah. if it, It's just impossible to extinguish when you come across your path and realize that it's yours, I think once yeah. you come up across your path and you get this feeling, you're like, "This is it! Like this is mm-hmm. this is what I'm going to be doing." There's nothing that could detract me from this work, and I think because I'm fiercely passionate about it, I think that's also what helps me avoid burnout. Um, I remember someone telling me in in my first year of doing this, they're like, "You're not going to keep you're not going to be able to keep working at the pace that you're working." But at the end of the day, I sleep easy because. I genuinely love what I do and I don't have fear that it's not going to work. That's one fear that I just don't have. And maybe it's because I know myself. I just know that I do whatever it takes to, to get the job done. And I'd like to think that I'm smart and enterprising and I'll, I'll find a solution that works. Um, my dad also told me, you're, you're not done until every single person has said no to you. And there are a lot of doors in this country. <laughs> so there, there are a lot really of doors are. to knock on. Yeah. And he also told me when he when he invested, he said, build this business from the perspective that no one but your customers will give you an outside dollar. And so I kind of took that approach. And I think by the time we raised our seed around, we were in a great position with customers. We had a lot of traction and it made it a lot easier to raise a seed around for sure.
0: Yeah. Revenue never hurts. <laughs> More revenue is uh, always welcome. So Nadia, this interview has been awesome. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. I was hoping you could leave our listeners with one piece of wisdom, a story, or a call to action for anyone out there who's listening and who maybe they haven't found that type of passion yet, but they're still looking and they're uh, optimistic that they're going to find it. So what would you leave them with?
2: I would say try everything, explore everything. I think you know, reading as many books as you can, consuming as much content, listening to as many podcasts as you can. Like I said, you'll know your path when you come across it and you'll have all the energy you will have ever needed to to keep going and and do what you want to do. But I didn't know I didn't know that this was it when I was 17 and I didn't know that this was it when I was 20 and I didn't know that this was it when I was 24, but when I was 25 and I came across it, I was like, this is it. And I think that I've continuously kept trying to figure out how to be better at what I do And I think that also considering not just what you want to do, but who you want to become is really important. Sometimes making the decision of the kind of who you want to become and the kind of person that you, you would like to be is really informative and can help you come across what it is that you'd really like to do in life. So I, I, would, I would definitely say that.
0: Very cool. Wise words. And that's a great place to end it. See everybody next time.